is what we're preaching on this evening. Um, and it deals with the whole issue of fear, because all of us have fears of one kind or another. Um, we may not call it fear, we may call it anxiety, uh, may call it worry, maybe a sense of uncertainty, uh, but there are things that concern us, that unsettle us. Uh, and the way we respond to those things uh, varies from person to person, depending on our uh, makeup, our character. Uh, for some people, those worries seem to pile in all the time until they're thoroughly depressed and, uh, and thoroughly down in the dumps. Uh, other people seem to find a way to sort of ignore uh, that most of the worries that they have and uh, focus on more positive things. Uh, but however much we try to push those worries out of our uh, minds, out of our focus, they have a nasty habit of coming back and rearing their ugly head again and biting us when we're not quite ready. And we ought not to be surprised that worry is part of our makeup because of the kind of world that we live in and because of the kind of people that occupy this planet. The kind of world we live in is a world that is characterised by disease and sickness, for instance. Uh, and despite all the advances of modern me medicine, uh, people still get ill and they still die. And that is a cause of stress and anxiety for people. We live in a world of natural disasters where there are tsunamis, hurricanes, tidal waves, uh, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions. We may not get most of those things in this country, uh, though we do get pretty strong winds occasionally that bring trees down and damage houses. Uh, and I must admit, when uh, the wind starts getting above a certain speed, I tend to worry about our roof uh, and hope that it's still there in the morning. Uh, we live in a world where these sort of things are commonplace. and some parts of the world, they're even more than we experience here. And in spite of what some people may say, there is the whole issue of global warming and wondering what sort of world we're going to leave for our descendants to occupy. Uh, will it be a world that's fit to live in or one that we, by our uh, callousness, have ruined and spoiled and wrecked? So the world that we live in has plenty of causes for anxiety and worry and stress and fear. But also the kind of people that occupy this planet. We're people who are greedy, intolerant, proud, selfish, and that you can make a whole long list of characteristics that, to some extent or another, are common to all of humanity. There are very few people that are free of all of those vices. And as a result of those sort of things, uh, you get breakdown in relationships, breakdown in family relationships, breakdown in national relationships. Aren't we seeing that in our own country at the moment where you've got two entrenched political positions that seem to uh, have no room for compromise or anything? Um, then there's the international uh, breakdown of relationships uh, between uh, the Western nations and Iran, for instance, uh, with the seizure of those uh, oil tankers yesterday. So there are all sorts of things that happen because of people's inability to live with each other in peace, because of people's greed and pride and arrogance. We live in a world where there is, therefore, plenty of cause for worry and stress, without mentioning things like terrorism and war and things like that. Given all of that, small wonder 
that more people aren't to totally and thoroughly depressed and, and, and anxious and fearful. But we tend to push these things away as much as we can and tend to ignore them if we can possibly do so. But it is an issue and we do need to face up to it. And Genesis chapter 15 that we're looking at this evening is a very relevant chapter because it kicks off right in the very, very first verse of the chapter with God addressing Abram and saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. Incidentally, it's worth noting, uh, if you had your Bible in front of you uh, and saw the name Abram, you probably might have thought to yourself, hang on a minute, isn't he called Abraham? How come he's Abram here? Well, you need to read on to chapter 17 to discover when he received the name Abraham, but it is the same individual. Abram was his original name, and God changed it in Genesis 17 to Abra Abraham. But you can read that for yourselves after the service. But God, right at the beginning of this chapter, addresses Abram and says, don't be afraid, Abram. Not in the sense of, you silly person, there's nothing to be frightened of, but rather that God recognised that Abram was liable to be afraid and anxious and stressed and needed some sort of reassurance, some sort of word from God that would calm his fears. So what we're going to look at this evening is three areas of concern and worry that people have that are exemplified in this chapter. And the first of those is fear about personal security. Now to understand that we need to just put this chapter in its context because in chapter 14 of, uh, of Genesis there had been a war in that part of the Middle East. Five kings against four kings and lots of people have been drawn into that conflict and in particular Abraham's relative Lot who had been living in the city of Sodom was taken prisoner along with his possessions and his family and carried off by the victorious armies that had triumphed in the, the battle between these various groups. But Abraham, hearing about Lot's capture, determined to try and do something to try and rescue his relative. And so he called together various allies that he had, people that he knew who were friendly to him, and together they set out to try and rescue Lot and in chapter 14, verse 15, we read, During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobar, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. So Abram had been successful in rescuing his, his relative Lot, but here was the issue that must have been festering in the back of his mind. What happens if those kings that I've just defeated and from whom I've rescued Lot regroup and decide to bring a counterattack against me? Will I be able to withstand it? Will I be prepared? Because obviously in situations of war, there's not only attacks, there are counterattacks and counter-counterattacks. And Abraham must have been anxious about that because God addresses the issue before Abram has even had a chance to express it. And the fact that God speaks to Abram in this way, to reassure him, to say, don't be afraid, indicates that Abram must have had this at the back of his mind, gnawing away. So what we've got here is God taking the initiative, not waiting for Abram to express his fear, or to recognise his fear, 
but stepping in before he'd even spoken a word. But it's interesting to notice the way that the Lord reassured him. First of all, by what he didn't say. You might have expected the Lord to say to Abraham, don't worry, those five kings, Kedorlaomar and his crew, they won't come back, they won't attack you, you're safe from those five kings. That would have been a wonderful reassurance. But actually God gave Abram a better reassurance than that because God said, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. In other words, the Lord was going to be his shield. So that was a more secure view of his situation. Not only was he going to be secure from this particular situation that he faced, but he was going to be secure from whatever situation he faced because the Lord was on his side to protect him. Worth noting, incidentally, there are some slight variations in the translation of this verse in different versions of the Bible. If you've got the TNIV, such as I've got, and I think was read from earlier, uh, and also the King James Version, then it says, Do not be afraid, Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. But if you've got the Revised Standard Version, or the English Standard Version, it says, Do not be afraid, Abraham, I am your shield, your reward will be very great. Now, I don't think it actually makes a vast amount of difference as to which one you go for. But both of those translations agree that it's the Lord who is the shield. It's the Lord who guarantees Abram's security and safety. But the other part of the verse is relevant actually as well, because it gives a further reassurance in the context of Abram's life at that particular point. Because also in chapter 14, we read of an incident where Abram is returning from his victory over these kings, bringing back with him the captives and all the possessions that had been rescued, and he's met by the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom says to Abram, take all the goods, take all the possessions, take all the loot that you want, but just leave me with the people. And Abram had given a very memorable reply. He said, no, I won't accept even the thong of a sandal from you, lest you say... I made Abram rich. In other words, Abram wanted his riches and his security to be seen as coming from the Lord and not from any other source. He wasn't going to allow the king of Sodom the opportunity later on in his life to say, you see that man Abram? It was the goodies I gave him that made him so successful and rich. And Abram wasn't going to stand for that. But maybe as he came away, Abraham might have thought to himself, was that the right thing to do? I mean, after all, uh, there's a lot of possessions there that I could have added to my stock. And God's uh, reply to him is not, don't be afraid, I am your shield, but also, I am your great reward. Or even if you take the other version, your reward will be very great. The assurance to Abraham is twofold. You're going to be safe, And you won't miss out because of your generosity and because of your conducting yourself with faith and integrity. What about us? What sort of reassurance do we need? What sort of situations do we face that threaten our personal security? Maybe an operation that is pending 
and you're afraid of what might show up. Maybe some uncertainty about your place of work. Maybe the possibility of being made redundant. Maybe a breakdown in family relationships and you're wondering where it's all going to go. There are all sorts of things that can creep into us to make us fearful and anxious. But God's word to Abraham is relevant to us as well. Because it's recorded not just for Abraham's benefit, but for ours. Do not be afraid, he says, and put your name there. I am your shield, your very great reward. And so important is that, that Genesis 15 isn't the only place where you read it. Over and over and over again throughout the Bible, you find God coming to different individuals and saying, don't be afraid, I'm with you, I will help you, I'll protect you. Don't be afraid. Let me just give you one example from Isaiah chapter 43. And now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. See how God goes out of his way to give reassurance. And did you notice that he says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Not if you pass through the waters. God anticipates that there will be difficult situations that will be faced by his people. When you pass through the waters... When you walk through fire, not if, God recognises and admits that there will be difficult situations that we will face. But the important thing is, he says, I will be with you. They shall not overwhelm you. You shall not be burned. God goes out of his way to reassure us that he cares about us, that he will watch over us, and he will help us through those difficult situations. That's the first area of concern then that Abraham had for his personal security and God reassured him. But the very next thing that we have is expressed in verses 2 and 3. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Several times in the chapters before this, God had promised to Abraham that he would have family. So in chapter 12, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Chapter 12 and verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. Chapter 13, verse 15, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. God had been reiterating that promise of offspring. But Abraham says, but I haven't got any offspring. You've not given me any offspring, and I'm getting old. And as things stand, one of my servants is going to be my heir. Abraham felt concerned about that. But perhaps he was encouraged by God's reassurance a moment previously when God had said don't be afraid that it's okay to bring your concerns to God that we shouldn't just bottle them up and try to sort of cope with them on on our own but we need to bring those things to God and to spread them before him as Abraham did 
And Abraham, quite openly with God, said, where's this offspring going to come from? And maybe God would reassure him. But what did God do to reassure him? You read in verse 4 and 5. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Full stop. That's it. In other words, God simply reiterated the promise. He didn't give any timetable. He didn't give any further evidence, any further reassurances. Simply his bare word, this one will not be your heir, but a child coming from your own body will be your heir. And what do we read? Abraham believed the Lord. For Abraham that was enough. If God said it, then it will happen. Don't know how, don't know when, but it will happen. And that settled Abraham's fears. But very interestingly, verse 6 doesn't end with the words I've just quoted. Because it goes on and says, He, that is the Lord, credited it to him as righteousness. Now we might be inclined to just pass over that and say, okay, fair little comment. But our inclination to pass it over misses the fact that the Apostle Paul saw it as massively significant. So when he was writing his letter to the church at Rome, he said in chapter 4 and verse 3, What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, Their faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, the Apostle Paul saw that little phrase back in Genesis chapter 15 as a confirmation of the gospel that he was preaching. How was Abraham made right with God? How was he counted righteous? How was he credited as righteous? Simply by believing God. Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. And Paul says, that's exactly the gospel I've been preaching. That if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe God's promise of salvation, that if you trust in Christ, that your sins are forgiven, you become an heir of God and an heir of glory, then you're made right with God. It's not by scoring brownie points. It's not by doing lots of good things. It's not by becoming massively religious. It's not done by giving your money away and trying to live a moral life. No, the way that we're made right with God, says Paul, is by believing the promise. Believing that if we trust in Christ, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Believe God is the message. But what is the particular fear that's being addressed here? What is behind Abraham's concern? Well, I would suggest that Abraham felt like a little bubble on a passing stream that just bubbles up for a moment and disappears. Do you ever feel like that? When you think about the flow of time and you think, where's where's my significance? Where's my 
value. My life will be gone in no time at all. And then who will remember me? And maybe Abraham was seeking some sort of consolation in thinking, well, at least I will have family that will remember me and and will continue my line. But actually God was offering him much better than that, much better than family. God was offering him a relationship with himself that would never end. When it says God credited it to him as righteousness, he meant that Abraham was counted as right with God. And that relationship, based on faith, would never end. It would go on beyond the grave, beyond death, into all eternity. The Apostle Paul, again, writing in a letter to the Romans, wants to reassure us of that very thing. When he says in chapter 8, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, once that relationship is begun, nothing will break it. Jesus said in one place, they shall never perish and no man will pluck them out of my hands. We're secure once we've put our faith in Christ. It doesn't matter whether generations come and generations go and they forget us. The important thing is that we have a relationship with God which continues, that we shall be with God to enjoy him and to enjoy his blessing for all eternity and to praise and worship him for all eternity. God's word of promise reassures us that our significance is not in family. A great blessing though that is, are our significances in a relationship with him where we counted right with him. But there's one more area of concern that Abraham had and it's raised by God himself in verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And that reminder of the promise of the land just prompted Abraham to raise another concern that he had. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? Very natural sort of question. God said, this land's going to be yours. You're going to take possession of it. But Abraham looked around and said, well, there are the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the, um, all the different people groups that are populating the land at the moment. And even if I have a child, as you promised, we're not going to be able to drive all these people out and take possession of it. They're going to insist on remaining here. So how's this ever going to happen? It just seems sort of mind-boggling and mind-blowing. So God answered him in a twofold way. The first of which is rather strange to our modern ears. He tells Abraham to get a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, and a dove and a young pigeon. And Abraham knew exactly what to do with them. The animals he cut in half and arranged in two rows, and the birds he just put into the two rows without injuring them, other than obviously killing them. Uh, but Abraham knew what to do because this was something that was common in the Middle East at that time and it was the making of a covenant or an agreement between two parties and basically what the ritual amounted to was 
the two parties involved in the covenant would make promises to each other and effectively would say, if I break my side of the promise, then treat me and let me be treated like these dead animals. In other words, it was a solemn commitment to hold to the promise. The difference in this particular situation was that only God made the promise. Only God made a commitment. Abraham was simply on the receiving end of God's commitment. And God promises to him that one day the Lord, on that day, sorry, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants I will give this land. And as God speaks, this smoking brazier moves through the gap between the broken carcasses as a symbol of God committing himself to this covenant relationship. God made a covenant to say, yes, you will surely get this land for sure. But then God did something else. And that is he gave him a bit of a potted history or a preview of history. So in verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Abraham's given a bit of a sketch not all the full fine detail, but basically enough to say it's going to be a long time, it's not going to be a smooth ride, but the end is secure. It will happen. God is big enough to make it happen. In other words, what God was saying to Abraham is, you're interested in the minutiae, the small details of life. But God says, I'm painting on a big canvas that spans hundreds of years, even thousands of years. I can see the end from the beginning. I can see how it's all going to unfold. And my purposes will hold firm. They will come to pass. God sees the big picture. And that same reassurance is given by the Apostle Peter in the New Testament. Because he had people saying to him, look, where's this promise of Jesus is coming? Everything's the same as it ever was. Uh, you know, nothing's changing. And Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. What's Peter saying? He's saying God's made some massive promises and we can't see the detail of how it's all going to work out in the timing. But God sees it and it will happen so we can trust we can put our confidence in God. 
And there's the final area of fear. The fear of our limited understanding. We look at some of the big things in the New Testament and we think, how can that be? How can we begin to see how that's going to all work out? There are some massive promises and massive prospects held out. How is it all going to happen? And God comes to us, as he did to Abraham, and says, I'm big enough to see it through. Believe me that I'm the God who is almighty, the God who is good, the God who promises and fulfills his promises, who does not fail. Have you got fears? Fears for your personal security? Fears about what sort of significance you have in this massive world where we seem to be here today and gone tomorrow? Fears arising from your own limited understanding and thinking, I can't wrap my brain around that. Well, God reassures us and says, don't be afraid. I'm big enough to see that you're come to no harm. I'm big enough to give you significance through your relationship with me. I'm big enough to see through all the plans and purposes that I have and that will come to fruition in due course. Let's pray.